In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Sandy. In this episode of Money Tales, our guest is Elizabeth Lesser, one of Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100, a collection of 100 leaders who are using their voices and talent to elevate humanity. In our conversation with Elizabeth, we learn about her abilities as an exceptional visionary and business leader, and also how she's often uncomfortable and can lack confidence about personal financial decision-making. With this combination of strength and vulnerability, Elizabeth elevates the money conversation by being human and honest. It's no wonder why she's on Oprah's Super Soul list. Cami here. You should know that Elizabeth is a best-selling author and the co-founder of Omega Institute the renowned conference and retreat center located in Rhinebeck, New York. Elizabeth's most recent book, Cassandra Speaks, reveals how humanity has outgrown its origin tales and hero myths and empowers women to trust their instincts, find their voice, and tell new guiding stories. Sandy and I appreciate how Elizabeth demonstrates many of the insights and practices she discusses in her book as she tells her important money stories. Before we dive into the conversation, This is a reminder that Money Tales is brought to you by Asperian, a leading independent wealth management firm where we passionately believe in the importance of having money conversations. Now, on to our interview with Elizabeth Lesser. Elizabeth Lesser, we're looking forward to this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us on Money Tales. Thank you for having me. Just a pleasure to be here. We always start these conversations out by asking our guests to share with us the journey of your life in two or three pivotal moments. We know that's challenging, but, but give us the overview to help give us some context for our conversation today. I was born into a family of four daughters, a mother, a grandmother, a great aunt, all in one house and one father. He was the leader of the whole clan. He was a very kind of powerful, his way or the highway guy. And for some reason, I still don't know. I kind of self-selected as the one who stood up to him. I just thought it was absurd. How come one person, just because of his gender, got to tell everyone else what we were going to do, how we were going to do it, when we were going to do it, who could talk when, and everything like that. And that sort of followed me all through life, college, starting a business, being in male-dominated fields. I just always had this like, No, this is not right. So I've been involved in all sorts of social justice work. And oddly, I've also always been a spiritual seeker, someone who wants to make sure that who I am on the inside matches up with how I'd like the world to be. So I've also been very involved in meditation and yoga and psychotherapy and things about tuning ourselves, even as we tune the world. And so that's it in a nutshell. Elizabeth, can you tell us what money was like in your home growing up? Yeah, very confused. My mother was an intellectual, socially aware in her college years, which was unusual for her to even be a college graduate, the first in her family. She was a communist. She joined the Communist Party. This was in the 1940s, late 1940s. And my father was certainly not a communist, but he was a nature lover. And even though he was an ad man on Madison Avenue, he was a madman. <laughs> you know, if you ever watched Mad Men, sure. he was one of them. He really didn't care about money. He just wanted to get home and take off his suit and tie and 
tramp in the woods. And by the time I was in high school, they left Long Island, where I lived, moved to Vermont, and went back to the land. So my mother's message to us about money was, money is evil, capitalism is wrong, you shouldn't want too many things, you shouldn't buy too many things, shopping malls are where the devil lives. Um, <laughs> and my father just didn't care about any of it. He just loved nature and ideas and books. And they were both intellectuals. And money was just nothing you were supposed to think about, talk about, try to get, show off about, or anything like that. Elizabeth, that is a really interesting background. Your mom and dad seem like opposites, but not opposites. So they had a lot of similarities. Would you share with us, when did you start thinking about money? I never really thought about it that much as a kid, because you weren't supposed to. Now, I, there were a lot of things I thought about that I wasn't supposed to, but for some reason, the money thing was very strong. And then I went to Barnard College in New York City, which is the girls' school of Columbia University. It was a hotbed of activism, feminism, anti-war. This was in the 1970s, early 1970s. And I just threw myself into social action work, feminism, civil rights, anti-war. And also, it was a time of American culture when gurus from the East were like washing up on the shores of America. <laughs> And I was fascinated by this. My parents also were atheists and thought that if you had any spiritual leanings, you were therefore not very intelligent. But I always, as a kid, I wanted to go to church. I would tag along with my next door neighbor to Catholic mass. I remember once I came home with a smudge on Ash Wednesday and everyone in the family just fell on the floor laughing. Like I was this sort of romantic, spiritual little girl. I really started to think about money when I co-founded with my ex-husband a business. And he was very financially literate. I met him when he was in medical school and I was in college. And we both became students of a spiritual teacher and then started Omega Institute, which has now become one of the largest conference and retreat centers in the United States in the Hudson Valley in New York State. At the time, it was just a bunch of kids with an idea, but it became a business very quickly. I was like, wow, I'm running a business. I have no idea about this. I don't know anything about money, marketing, budgeting, timelines. I didn't even know those words. None of us did really, but we learned as we went along and I began to have an enormous respect for business and for running a business. Talk about karma. If karma is the law of cause and effect, you get it right away in business. You want to stay in business? You have to be financially sharp, awake, and make very rational decisions. So that's when I started thinking about it. So it sounds like you had a lot of purpose around Omega Institute and that allowed you the opportunity to learn more about money from the business context. Elizabeth, did your, the messages you received when you were a child, were they in conflict with this newfound knowledge that you were developing? Absolutely, yes. And I felt it in myself. And it played out a lot in my ex-husband and my relationship. Because even though I intellectually, rationally knew that a lot of our decisions had to be bottom line decisions. I was also rejecting of only bottom lining it. I was always looking for that second bottom line. How are we treating our staff? Where should we spend our money? Which we didn't have any for our first 10 years. We didn't even pay ourselves. It was such a startup business. It was at the time so far out. Things like yoga, natural food as a way of healing your body, meditation, stress reduction, all of this was just weird when we first started. It's now, you can't turn around in a small town without seeing a yoga studio, but that it was not part 
of the zeitgeist when we started Omega in 1975. So yes, as we tried to grow and just exist and thrive, there was a lot of conflict within me around how do we make these financial decisions. And I knew some of the times they were knee-jerk, anti-money, raw, unformed childhood stuff that I better go to a therapist about. But some of them were my ideals and pushing back about bottom line capitalism that I didn't want to let go of. And I'm still in that dance. I, you know, core childhood stuff doesn't just disappear no matter how you work on it. I'm wondering, were you talking to your ex-husband about these conflicting feelings you were having at the time or was it more an internal conversation? Talking, it wouldn't be the way to describe it. <laughs> Fighting, crying, having really hard meetings. And that's where it hit up for me with women's issues because I was, for the first 10 years or so, I was one of the only women in leadership and really the highest up woman in leadership. And we were all in our 30s by the time what I'm talking about now that you could even say we were a staff, you know, we weren't just a couple of people. I felt that a lot of my questioning of how we structured the organization, what we did with our money and how much we charged and how much we paid had as much to do with my childhood voices as my female concerns. And then I was a mother and I was trying to be a parent while being a leader and there was very low consciousness around job sharing, parental leave. These weren't even words. And so I was trying to be both a mother and a leader with very little support. How'd that work for you? That just sounds really challenging. How'd you do it all? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I can hardly fit in everything today in my work. And I think, how did I do it? And eventually I was a single mom. My husband and I got divorced, and I was a single mom, and then I remarried and was a stepmom and a mom, and it was chaos. And so how moms do it, and dads, because there are so many great dads, we don't live in a, a society that really supports families in the workplace. It's one of my most cherished ideals that we could change, supporting parents in the workplace. Do you have some ideas of what changes you would make to better support parents? One is just a meta change, which is valuing the family <laughs> and knowing that children, if everyone works and no one cares for the kids, we're not going to have a very good society. So it comes down to us deciding as a society what's important and what's of value. And should people have to stay at work after 4.30 p.m. to prove that they care about their business? Can't Now, things are going to change because of COVID and the way we've all started working at home. And I actually say, thank you, COVID. <laughs> Silver lining. I just think changing parental leave, changing shared jobs, and then my biggest desire is for it no longer to be thought of that women raise the kids and the dads babysit every now and then. We all raise the kids. There's no such thing as could you watch the kids. Both parents have that caring instinct in them so that no one has to ask anybody else. They're both attuned to the needs of the children and the family. So it is not just weighted on the woman. Elizabeth, would you share with us what has been a pivotal money decision you've had to make? I think the biggest one for me is learning how to ask for what I deserve as a salary and as money. For a long time, both because my childhood upbringing that money doesn't matter or that it's even worse than that, it's bad. And also, I think as women, we sell ourselves short in asking for what we, not, not even knowing what we're worth. Forget about asking, first knowing the imposter syndrome that like, I don't really know enough to be the vice president, the president, you know, the manager, I don't know enough. Whereas men, 
they also don't know enough, but they have the hubris, the positive hubris, to be like, yeah, but I'm cool, and I've got this, and I'm going to do it. For us to develop our backbone when it comes to knowing what we're worth and asking for what we're worth and knowing how to negotiate, I was terrified to negotiate. I mean, I was terrified to negotiate if I went to a country where negotiation was like, you go to Turkey or, you know, and like, and people are like bartering for the rug. And I'm like, oh God, just give him what he wants. (laughs) (laughs) So I have had to learn that. And I'm in my 60s and I think I'm finally learning it. And it's taken me a long time to know my worth, to speak my worth, and to draw some lines in the sand. So for me, the biggest money decision I've had to make was when I finally knew I was doing as much, if not more, than the men in my business, and I was getting paid the least. We had brought a consultant in to our organization to do some other stuff, and I finally thought, I need help. I don't know how to do this. And I asked him, teach me how to know my worth. It was therapeutic. It was like a therapy, several sessions with him and how to ask for it. What happens when they say no? Then what do I do? I was a baby in it. But getting help was very important. Good for you. I think it's fantastic. I think some of us try and, why do we have to know all this innately, everything? from being a great parent to being a great business person to how to negotiate. When you don't know, you seek guidance. And it doesn't surprise me. It looks, it sounds like that's very much who you are. Elizabeth, for our listeners who might be struggling with this same effort, what advice do you give? Some of it, the hardest part for me isn't the negotiating, it's knowing our worth. That's deep. It's not only deep in your own upbringing, even your own cultural world or your church or whatever it is that influenced you. It's the whole culture. I mean, my newest book, Cassandra Speaks, is about looking at those old stories, this story that women were born second, first to sin, not to be taken seriously, be quiet, hide your body. These are messages that have been told to women through the ages We might think, I don't read the Bible. I don't read Greek myths. What are you talking about? Those stories still stick to us. They stick to our culture. We hear them all the time. And so the first line of work for me really could be called therapy. If you're feeling, I could never ask for a raise, or I get terrified when I go and have to talk about who I am and what I've done, and show off my value. If you think I'm showing off, I'm talking too much. If you hear those messages, I really suggest getting help. Just basic therapy or coaching. So you can say, whose voice is that telling me I'm no good or I'm an imposter? That's what therapy is really good for. Not like psychotherapy that goes on for years or years even. Just some help in Whose voice is telling me what in my head? Our heads are very crowded with also our mothers in there, our grandmother, all the way, all our ancestors, the church, the school. It's just like blah, blah, blah. And, and meditation is another really good practice for quieting what the Buddhists call the monkey mind, quieting, settling, like the dirt settling in water so that maybe a clearer voice and a clearer sense of self can emerge. I'm feeling more calm and more sure of myself just hearing you describe that. So thank you, Elizabeth. I am too, Sandy. I'm really glad you brought up Cassandra Speaks. Let's talk about that book because I think it's so interesting that you start with these stories and you make the argument that it's important to retell stories. And especially as a woman, there are few stories where we're protagonists, where we have the power, where we have the money. And you talk a lot in the book about power. And I'd wonder if you could just describe some of your ideas for our listeners. Well, I break the book up into three sections, origin stories, 
power stories and then your story, changing your own story. I call it a brave new ending. I go into quite a few of the early stories that I believe still stick to us, whether the Bible stories, mostly Adam and Eve, and then some of the Greek myths. The reason I call the book Cassandra Speaks is I was reading about Cassandra at the time when there was that televised trial of Dr. Larry Nasser, who had uh, sexually abused over 30 years hundreds of young athletes, mostly gymnasts, many of them Olympic athletes. And they had told their mothers and fathers and coaches and college coaches and the American, the International Olympic Society. And they told everybody, this doctor is not healing me. He's sexually abusing me. Hundreds of them over 30 years. And no one believed them. And they had to keep enduring this. And finally, a few of them started finding their voice, speaking their truth, and demanding to be believed. And the most wonderful part, I decided to call the book Cassandra Speaks when I was watching the televised trial and Judge Rosemary Aquilina, she did something that was very unusual and unheard of in a courtroom. She allowed any witness who wanted to speak to speak for as long as she wanted. And more than a hundred young women some by now were actually in their 40s because it had gone on for so long, all told their experience. And she made Dr. Nasser sit there and listen to every one of them. And it went on for days. And she would say to them, I am listening to you. I am believing you. No one has believed you, but I believe you. And I hear you tell us what happened. Just that was incredible healing. I felt it in my bones. There are so many times at work I've said things that I know are true that have been glossed over, or then they show up later as someone else's idea. It can make you feel crazy. It's gaslighting, where you say what's true, and you're made to feel you're hysterical or something like that. So Cassandra was a princess in Troy in ancient Greece, and she was the most beautiful princess in the land. And all the men, even the gods, were after her. And Apollo son of Zeus, wooed her by saying, I'm going to give you the gift of prophecy. You're going to look into the future. You're going to see it, know it, and you're going to tell the people you'll be a prophet. You'll know the truth and speak the truth, and you'll change the world. She wanted that, but she didn't understand that it came with the payment of him having sex with her right then and there and being his wife. She didn't understand that. So she took the gift, and then when she refused his overtures, he cursed her. He said, you still are going to know the truth. You're still going to say it, but no one will believe you. And so she warned everyone about the Trojan War, about her family dying, about her city in ruins, but no one believed her. And she finally went mad from knowing the truth and not being believed. And I thought, so many of us in our life know things in our bones that our world needs, that our businesses need, that our families need. We've kind of bought this idea that we don't see clearly because we're too emotional or we're hysterical. Just be quiet. Other people know better. It's the message women have gotten. So I wanted the book to undo that message. You know things about how power could be shared, how people could be empowered as opposed to power over, power with. Many women just feel, I, I instinctually understand this, but We've been told we're idealistic, it would never work. I wanted this book to give women in their real everyday life the encouragement to trust themselves, to find their voice and to use it. So great. I think money is tied into that conversation because in our society today, we do little to educate men and women, girls and boys, about money. I agree. And because of all of these stories we've been told. I've found that some women really struggle with finding the power that comes with money, generating money. I'm one of them. I feel very financially illiterate, even though I've been part of a business and been aware that money and power are inexorably linked. It's not a bad thing. Money is energy. It's measurement. It's There's nothing inherently bad about it, but I I have 
remained pretty asleep and unconscious, not so much at work, but in my own taxes and budgeting and thinking about retirement and my kids and stuff like that. I've, I just almost hurt to think about. It's fascinating that you say that, Elizabeth, because you are someone who is so aware of so many things. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, what do you think played into you not having the awareness around money or not wanting to, to really dive into it? I don't know. Please fix me. <laughs> no. I don't think there's anything that needs to be fixed. I'm just, it, it's just a curiosity. Well, part of it is another message women get that I certainly got and bought into that women aren't good at math. And so I actually was kicked out of the National Honor Society in high school because although I was getting straight A's and everything else, I failed trigonometry and algebra. I just could not wrap my head around numbers. And it's almost as if there's some sort of either undeveloped part of my brain or the messages are so strong that I felt a sense of, I'm going to fail at this, so I shouldn't do it. That's one thing. And also, I've always enjoyed, as a leader, my method that just comes from an instinct is, I'm good at this, you're good at that, you're good at that. You do that, I'll do this, but we're all going to respect each other's piece of this puzzle. I'm more creative, I'm more involved in creating our curriculum, writing our stuff. You're more the money manager. You're more the marketing expert. I like teamwork. So I, because I didn't like the more budgetary business stuff, I just was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. It's easier in a business than it is in your own personal finances because somebody has to do it and that would be me. <laughs> When you think of having a healthy relationship with money and being really confident, would you describe what that is in your mind? Is it someone who does all the financial work and the bookkeeping and the accounting? It's someone who's interested in it. There are people like my husband, for example, who is a real estate lawyer and has purchased a lot of real estate over his years and now mostly manages his properties, which is are extensive. He just finds it challenging and exciting and fun and also a headache and everything like that. But for many people, I think money has deep meaning. It's not just something they can get so they can buy something else. There's a meaningfulness to it. It doesn't have a meaning to me. So I'm not really interested, although I need it and I want it. And so I feel out of integrity about it. It sounds, though, like in your business, in your marriage, you found teamwork. Yeah, for sure. Do you and your husband talk about money? Absolutely. As a, you know, many people who've been married twice, you know, this is my second marriage. We came into our relationship much more conscious and able to talk. And we have separate bank accounts. And we have our children who are, we're a very, very united family. But there, there we knew instinctually that step parenting, you don't have to fully take on the other person's child. It's a dance. It's, it's a whole other topic. It's a very interesting one. And in many ways, it's like money to me in a second marriage. We both came in with our own careers already settled. And so we share all our money and we're very loose about it. But on the other hand, I have my own savings. He has his. And he has a bemused attitude toward my kind of dense understanding of money. <laughs> and he would do anything to help me financially if I needed it. So I have that safety net with him. And I also lean on him for insight and input. I bet he does the same with you. I bet he leans on you for input on other things. Oh, totally. Yeah. I want to go back to Cassandra Speaks. And I don't want to gloss over the second part of the book, but in the third part of the book, I find it very helpful that you have a lot of idea sharing, how people can become better at raising their awareness about their own power and becoming more confident about it. And one of the discussions you have, which I found really interesting, was around language. 
and metaphors in particular. Would you share a little bit about that, Elizabeth? Yeah, I became very aware of the metaphors we all use. It started for me, I was in the airport right after 9-11, and I said to a woman who was trying to manage her toddler as she was going through taking off her shoes and everything. She was just, I held the baby for her. And at one point I said to her, whoa, babies are like time bombs, meaning children can just go off at any moment. And they whisked me out of line because I said the word time bomb. It was 9-11. They were so, it was really just the week afterwards. They were so afraid. And I had said time bomb. And afterwards, I thought, this is strange. Why did I call a baby a time bomb? And then I started looking at all the sports and war metaphors we use all the time. You know, like no holds barred. What does that mean? Where did it come from? I started looking up all these metaphors. No holds barred is a boxing metaphor where you can punch someone anywhere, in the face, in the head. There are no holds, or maybe it's wrestling, <laughs> no, no holds, no moves that are barred from this particular fight. And that's become what we say. I love, I love you, no holds barred. We don't even know why we're saying it, or hitting something out of the park, or beneath the line, or just about all of our acceptable metaphors are all sports or war. And I thought, that's really interesting. In language, it's like that. If you walk through a park and you look at all the statues, they're all of warriors. You would never see a woman giving birth statue, let's say. Our metaphors, our art have been all organized around the idea of warriorship. Now, warriorship is a necessary human instinct and skill, how to fight for what's right when you need to. But it certainly isn't the only one, nor should it be the only definition of a hero that you know how to fight the enemy. So a lot of the book and a lot of my thinking is about redefining what it means to be a hero. I call these the first, first responders. Why don't we value kindergarten teachers who are teaching children how to communicate, how to share? Why don't we value them as much as a fireman? Thank God for firemen, but thank God for kindergarten teachers and home health aides and nurses and the first responders we've seen during COVID. I would like to expand what a hero means. And a lot of that has to do with the language we use and the images we show and the stories we tell. Wow. Yes. Yes, Anne. <laughs> that is so right on, Elizabeth. And I love you raising it. Thank you. <laughs> Reading that part of the book really made me very conscious about the language I use and the metaphors I use, and especially the language around money. I bet. It's not uncommon for us to say when talking to a client who had some great financial success, hey, you're, you're crushing it. You're killing it. Right, right. You're a kick-ass, right? <laughs> you know, once I said that, when I got off the phone to a friend of mine who is a really powerful nuns, her name is Sister Joan Chittister. She was tr tried to excommunicate her many times for standing up to let women be priests. The Vatican has been after her for years. She's in her 80s now. Once I said to her, we were getting off the phone, and I said, you are so kick-ass, Joan, <laughs> Sister Joan. And she said, no. No, I'm not kick-ass. I am leaven, and you are leaven. And I had to look up leaven. It's what makes bread rise. And she said, you make us rise. I make people rise. I am leaven. I'm not kick-ass. And I thought, I'm never going to use kick-ass again. Now, I know you can get sort of like a, like a language police, and, you know, you get way too woke in language, and it's boring and sort of censorship, but it's fun to observe your language. Why would I want to be a kick-ass? I actually, I would never do that in real life. That isn't what I am. I am Levin. You are Levin. I love that. It did make me think about something we've mentioned on Money Tales before, which is that there are many different slang words for the word money. Far more than, like certain words like love, I don't think there's an I think that's an irreplaceable word. I don't think there's another word in the English language 
that I'm aware of that replaces love. But with money, there's cabbage, there's dough, there's moolah. Yeah. And I, I just thought that was really interesting. So when I was reading about the story you just shared in Levin, I was thinking, well, rolling in the dough still works. Can I ask you something? So I started telling you my money unconsciousness woes. And when I said, fix me, I wasn't, I, I was joking, but I wasn't joking. What do you do for someone like me who is a successful, self-aware person? And, but I, I do feel I could use some help. How do you help people? Well, thank you for that question. Oftentimes we start, Elizabeth, by talking about values and the purpose of the money. And then we'll talk about visions of the future and trying to tie the values and the purpose together with the vision and starting to unlock some of the, the blockages. Mm -hmm. It takes time. It's not uncommon. A lot of people have different relationships with money. That's part of the reason I love what I do is being able to be in those intimate conversations and really understand. Um, sometimes therapy, as you suggested, is really helpful. But also, I think for some people, they're just not interested in being able to delegate and find someone else to do that work is a really nice balance. I think it, 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 and that's part of what we do for our clients, but there needs to be a lot of trust there and there needs to be information sharing so that there is awareness. So it's finding the right balance. And Sandy, I think you've done a really great job on this financial literacy and it's having the foundational knowledge on a lot of different topics, but then instills the confidence that you realize this stuff isn't that complex. I might not want to go deep and I have decided to divide and conquer because I do these amazing things like write powerful books. I just want to bring up divide and conquer. <laughs> <laughs> I went right into it, Elizabeth, right into it. Of course, we it. Sorry. all do. <laughs> uh, that, that's a great point, to divide and delegate. And <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, I just think it's really important for people, like this to me, what I really love about Money Tales, and it's my own journey, is getting comfortable that doesn't mean I need to be a CPA, work on Wall Street, know such, you know, the intricacies, talking about it, knowing foundational knowledge. And if I do then decide to let others do some of the work, I just come at it much more confident. And I don't think about the need to fix someone and that I, I you know, I'm making it the I, I hope everybody walks away with that same, they are the I, they do not need to be fixed. That's all fine that you've got that comfort zone, you're talking about it, and someone else does the work for you. I don't do everything. I don't, you know, there's a lot of stuff I don't do in my home. Others help me with it. Excellent. I think when it comes to financial literacy and especially investments, one of the hurdles for many people is the language. There's a lot of jargon. Yeah. And I think it's a turnoff for many people in my experience, especially women, even working in this profession for over 20 years, conversations can get way too jargony for me. Yeah, like when it comes up for me, I will get a lot of shame that I don't understand the words, whether it's when I'm doing my taxes or thinking about should I put aside money in this or that for my kids and school funds. And Shame is a word that comes up that I don't know or understand the language. That's a tragedy that it shouldn't be that way. And part of it is because just in our country, we don't do enough to provide financial literacy education. And so I think as adults, we do feel like we are expected to know things that no one's ever taught us. And unless we've taken time to learn on our own, which in some cases can be really difficult to do. So I'm glad you asked us that question. Thank you. I know. Thank you. Elizabeth, as you look at your life today, how would you describe your current relationship with money? It's really changing because when you get into your 60s, and my husband is 70, even though I've been acutely aware that life is a journey with a beginning and middle and end, you're moving into the downside of the mountain. I am thinking a lot more now about saving, and I have five grandchildren, and I'm helping them 
with school, private school tuition and other things. And one thing that's a big question for me is, and they seem to agree with this idea, instead of thinking of saving money for when I die that they would inherit, using it now to help them so that I can enjoy seeing them have a better life because of my money. So I've been thinking and wondering about that. And also, of course, it's been very hard in COVID. Our, our organization had to close. It's been closed for a year because we're an in-person learning center where you stay and eat and sit in classrooms with other people. We, New York State shut us down. We weren't open anyway. We're looking tentatively at maybe opening in the summer, but we've had to let go of two-thirds of our staff, and we've had to all take enormous pay cuts. We're hanging on, waiting, government assistance, some loans, things like that. So I've tightened up some financially. I, I would say my relationship with money now is less about accumulating and more about saving and distributing. Elizabeth, how do you want to be remembered? I have a funny story at the end of Cassandra Speaks about when I was invited to speak at a conference in Austria, and there were only two women on the panel. The rest were all powerful men, mostly from spiritual disciplines, the Dalai Lama and people like that. And for some reason, they invited me to speak and the author, Isabel Allende, to speak. And I had never met Isabel. She's now one of my dearest friends because the theme of the conference was legacy. How do you want to be remembered? And I thought, as I was planning my speech, I'm not resonating with this idea of legacy and how do I want to be remembered. I, I thought to myself, because I was a backpacker for many years, and the backpacker's credo is leave no trace. And I, I've always thought, like, well, maybe just the love I gave, that'd be a good thing to leave. But I don't care about the rest. I, I really don't. I won't be here. I'll be somewhere where none of these things really have uh, cachet anymore. <laughs> so it doesn't matter to me. Anyway, when Isabel Allende got up to speak at this conference in Austria with a lot of pomp and circumstance, and she's tiny, she got up to the big podium and the man asked her, what do you want your legacy to be? She said, oh, legacy, it's a penis word. <laughs> and everyone in the audience were men. And the first two rows were all monks because it was in a monastery. It's a penis word. And everyone gasped except the Dalai Lama who laughed. And I thought, okay, I'm going to rip up my speech and say whatever I want. God bless you, Isabel Allende. And so later she apologized and said it was a different P word. It was patriarchy and it was about ego. She doesn't care how people remember her. That's not why she does what she does. She does what she does to bring joy and laughter and deliciousness into the world. And she doesn't care how she's remembered. And I don't really care either. Great. Well said. <laughs> I think I love the story, uh, but I think you will be remembered for how you impact so many people. So thanks for that. That's good. Thank you. And Elizabeth, you've done so many things in your life. What haven't you done yet that you most want to do? One is become financially literate. And I'm not just saying that. I really do. And I shall be calling you personally because I may not want to be remembered, but I don't want to leave a mess. If I'm not going to leave a trace, I have to clean up my money stuff. I understand that. And what else have I done that I, I feel pretty damn grateful and complete. You know, I think of traveling maybe, but in COVID times, it's taken on a whole other realm. So just get to be with my family more. They're spread out all over the country. So I got to go to Texas and California and things like that. Elizabeth, what's your next money conversation going to be? And who's it going to be with? It's going to be with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. I have enormous faith in life. I absolutely trust that we get directed by some great marionette string puller in the universe exactly where we need to go. And so you meet up with people 
And I just follow that. I'm, I, this is the way I've lived my life. This is the way I've worked. Okay, here I am. This was meant to be. So that's what it will be. We look forward to it. We do. Elizabeth Lesser, what a fabulous conversation this has been. You truly are loving. I feel so much higher than I did at the beginning of the conversation. Thank you for being open and honest and sharing your life's work and your, your relationship with money with us. Thank you for conducting such a cool interview. Thank you, Elizabeth. Sandy, that was such a great conversation we just had with Elizabeth Lesser. She's an amazing lady, has done so much, yet was also so humble and modest. I think I want to be her, Cammie. <laughs> I'm with you. I hope we get to spend some time with her in the near future. She's such an inspiration. And we say this about so many of our guests, right? If you look at the arc of their life and when they were growing up and she really became such a mover and shaker before all of these great health and wellness aspects that we focus on today were popular. That really struck me that they were pioneering something that probably sounded really weird to a lot of people. And now it's just- It's mainstream. It's mainstream. Exactly. I'd love to know what struck you most about her upbringing and then where she is today. I think it's amazing that Elizabeth grew up in a home where her mother equated money with evil and was able to break away from that. That's a strong and powerful message to receive as a young person. And she worked on how to break away from it. She did. And I think that was an incredible learning for us and for our listeners, because regardless of who we are, we receive so many money messages and, and look to our parents and other adults that are raising us to be our money models. And sometimes that works out beautifully and we get a lot of really great messages and habits form. And sometimes we don't. Elizabeth, just put it out there. Work on it. See a therapist, get help. Get a coach. I, I really appreciate it. Not These are not bad things. You are not broken if you need help in an area. For me, what she was espousing was so important that she wanted to get more comfortable with money. And so hire a coach, hire a therapist. I thought that was really powerful. Cami, one of the most inspirational things that Elizabeth said was right at the beginning when she described herself as a seeker. Mm. I was so inspired by that. That's why I said earlier, I want to be just like her because I want to be a seeker. I want to keep learning. There's so much to learn and know in life, especially about money and money matters and psychology and sociology around money. Absolutely. The more I learn, the less I know. That's how I feel. She started the Omega Institute with her husband, her now ex-husband. And she's pioneering something. But there, there was a balance she had to find between profitability and profitability being really, really important, but also what are the values? She described that, I think, as not focusing on just the bottom line, but focusing on a second bottom line. I think that's how, mm -hmm. how she referred to it. I loved that. I thought it was such a great reminder that money matters, but the relationships you have with other people, how you're treating your employees and the people in your life and looking out for them is really important. There was one other thing I wanted to highlight and it really stood out to me it was as we neared the end of our conversation, she talked about her own needs with financial planning and feeling as if she's really dropped the ball on, on understanding and being in control of her finances. And I was really drawn to the fact that she, and I, I think this is very common, that people feel they need to be pros in everything, especially in finances. For some reason, we don't think that I have to be a dentist. I don't have to be my kid's doctor. But for some reason in society, we think we need to know everything about financial matters. And instead, I think there's a foundational knowledge she's seeking, which is great. We think that's really important. But I really love that we had the opportunity to say, you don't need to be a pro in all this. That's right. And there's a whole host of different financial advisors available in the world. And looking for one can be very daunting. It's really important, I think, when people recognize that they want help, that they want to delegate, that they spend time and attention understanding what their needs are and finding the right fit with an individual advisor or a firm. And part of that is knowing what services the advisor provides. 
how the advisor is compensated. That's a really big piece. Uh, not all advisors are, are transparent about that. So I think it's really important to ask. It's also important to understand what professional designations the advisor has. That will indicate what ethical requirements they subscribe to. It relates to the amount of education and training that they've had. It also impacts the type of advice that they're giving. It's so right on. It's so right on. And then fundamentally, you have to like this person. You have to trust them because this relationship, if it's really successful, has to be a really open one where you're sharing a lot of your, your concerns, your values, your goals. So you have to be really comfortable with this person. That's a really great point, Cami. I was on a walk with a friend recently. We were masked, don't worry. <laughs> and she's in search of a financial advisor. And she asked me what questions she should be asking of the advisor she's talking to. And I said, honestly, I think you should pay more attention to what questions they're asking you. And if the advisor is really interested in you and your situation and what your needs are, and they're talking to both you and your spouse, not just one of you, and you feel comfortable, they're explaining to you what they do, and they're showing passion and curiosity, that goes a long way to helping you understand what the right fit is. So I wanted to share that with our listeners because I, I think that's really important. That's excellent advice, Sandy. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, thanks for joining us today. We really enjoy bringing Money Tales to you. We hope you get a lot out of it. Be in touch and let us know what you're learning through Money Tales. You can reach us at podcasts at com. And I'll also say, Cami, listeners, check out Elizabeth Lesser's writing. Cassandra Speaks is an amazing book, and she's written other really great pieces, and she's wonderful. We hope you really liked this episode. See you next time. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales.